You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University. So, part of our efforts are to create places for our Indigenous students to be able to celebrate and to feel good about being here. Part of this empowerment is to have that story be told in many different forms, but also among Native Indigenous peoples of the world for them to learn that they're not doing, it's just not happening to them. That was Dennis Weedman. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at FIU and a past president of the National Association for the Practice of Anthropology. In our conversation, Dennis explored the origin, mission, and secrets for success of FIU's Global Indigenous Faculty Forum and the Global Indigenous Student Group. These organizations work collaboratively. They raise indigenous voices and issues, and they make sure that FIU is a welcoming place for indigenous faculty, staff, students, and community members. Dennis went into great detail about the ways he facilitates connections and knowledge exchange, not only between indigenous and non-indigenous people, but amongst global indigenous groups themselves. I think he presents some really powerful strategies for promoting awareness and a sense of belonging for any historically underrepresented group. So here's Dennis and me. This card is beautiful. So so this is a card. It says Global Indigenous Group on it. Is this the student group's card? That's the student group that was uh, organized uh, six years ago to um, initiate our efforts to ha- uh, welcome Indigenous peoples to FIU and to make a welcoming place for students and faculty here. And so the... Uh, the Global Indigenous Group is recognized under the Student Government Organization. It's very active now for six years. And uh, that design uh, was a group effort, uh, and it's on banners and table things. And, uh, and it's, um, it, you know, you see the, the panther there for FIU. You see the turtle for Turtle Nation, which is a symbol for Native peoples. You see a feather as a representation of uh, the power of birds. And fire has an eternal energy. Uh, but there's, there's other many meanings in there. If you look deeply, there's a world behind all of that. I do you, you see, see that. see the globe? Yes. Yeah. So, so the Global Indigenous Group is part of the story of your work mm-hmm. around the indigenous peoples of South Florida and beyond. Um, the group you said is that's a, the student piece. Yes. But there's also a faculty group? Yes. Uh, so there's, um, it's called the Global Indigenous Forum. And so uh, the forum, the word forum means a place of uh, talking and listening and respect. And so uh, the mission of the Global Indigenous Forum, and it's very close for the uh, student group also, is uh, to c- uh, create spaces on at FIU and the campus to, for the indigenous voice to be heard and to be uh, respected and listened to. Mm-hmm. And so the mission of the Global Indigenous Forum is to bring the indigenous voice to the FIU campus, to South Florida, and to the world. Mm-hmm. And so through our various efforts, 
we've brought all many different uh, groups from around the world here. Uh, and also we engage with our local nations, the Seminole and the Miccosukee and the Carib and the Lakota. And the, there's many, many different and Quechua uh, right, who reside right here in South Florida. And so uh, we kind of, uh, uh, when I was uh, in the provost office uh-huh. for many years as an anthropologist, I got to know what was happening at the university. I've been here since the uh, early 80s, uh-huh. uh, over 30 years or so. And I'm an expert in native peoples of North America with a PhD from the University of Oklahoma. And all that time, there was very little emphasis or even events on uh, indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And so after I left the provost office after 10, 13 years, and re- taken on my role in the, as a faculty in the Department of Global Sociocultural Studies, where we offer a PhD now in, uh, with that title. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's the uh, sociology, anthropology, and geography combined. So uh, we have this uh, place, the uh, university, and we have all these events going, but very rarely would any of our existing institutions, you know, Latin American Caribbean Center, Asian Studies, it, you know, they weren't talking about this. Yeah. And so there was a space there that wasn't being met, and then we have this global uh, renewal of indigeneity around the world with the United Nations uh, Declaration of Indigenous Rights in 2007, which then uh, uh, it took indigenous peoples around the world 30 years of building and uh, organizing to influence the United Nations to where there's now a permanent forum on indigenous peoples there. But they were able to get this Declaration of Indigenous Rights, which then gave guidance from the United Nations to all the nations of the world that the political boundaries that we know of as the world is divided up have basically been imposed on the continents basically since the middle of the 1900s after after world wars. Mm -hmm. And those political boundaries cut many indigenous peoples, tribals peoples, the original people of those continents uh, apart. And so there was many nations, indigenous peoples who find themselves in two different, uh, with their peoples, their kinship all cut up, you know, between the Iroquois and, and Canada and the Apache or the Pima along the southern border, all over the world. You know, basically the wars in the Middle East are basically because those political boundaries came in on our religious and uh, the original peoples of the lands. And so that wasn't being discussed here, but now that the UN had this initiative, and it gives rights to the people to voice themselves politically for the nation states to recognize them and not to assimilate or to uh, try to uh, exterminate. Mm-hmm. You know, genocide is actually, and assimilation is 500 years of that here in all of North, South, Central America. But it empowers the native people to speak up and say, nation state, the UN says, uh, we, sh- we should be able to have, speak our own language. We should have be, not be persecuted for our religions. Uh, we should be able to have our own media, uh, television, arts, and that, that we see a flurry of that all over the world now. And so uh, we, now, uh, we now have uh, at least uh, a dozen uh, graduate students in five different departments uh, looking at uh, the, the different uh, 
movements or uh, histories of this reemergence of indigenous peoples of the world. So we've able, in six years, we've been able to even stimulate, uh, you know, doctoral level training. Last semester, we graduated two students. One, one uh, talking about the uh, economic development on reservations with the Seminole and the Miccosukee, and another one on national organizations that try to get people to use local foods. And it's a dissertation on the Washington State. Uh -huh. uh, very, uh, student being engaged with the tribal peoples there who are trying to regain access to their traditional foods. And I can go on and on. Yeah. Well, what I hear, which is really amazing, and I hadn't thought about it that way before, is that there was an interesting confluence of events. There was the UN declaration mm -hmm. around 2007. That's just about the time when this institution is starting to think about what are we going to do for the next 10 years to uh, improve the quality of education for our students. So it was the birth t birthing time mm -hmm. of global learning for global citizenship. Mm -hmm. And around the same time, you're saying that you were really hearing students' calls for there to be some kind of indigenous group, some kind of yeah. club, some kind of yeah. native people's club. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When students register here, there's an issue with homogenizing the peoples of the world. They put them in the categories, this limited number of categories, uh, Hispanic being one of them, Anglo, those categories. But Hispanic is a Spanish language spoken all over the world. It, many indigenous peoples from Guatemala, you know, speak various Indian languages in Mexico, hundreds of different languages. When they come here, as soon as they arrive here, they are then denied their identities. And then, and then they find difficulty uh, surviving in, in, with success here because it's, uh, their identities are, oh, you're Hispanic. So part of our efforts are to create places for our indigenous students to be able to celebrate and to feel good about being here. Beautiful. So tell me more about how we do that. What, what are the types of things that are happening inside the classroom, outside of the classroom to achieve the forum's mission, which is the faculty, gr uh -huh. faculty component, and the, and the group's mission, this, this right. to bring indigenous people's voices to the table? Yeah. Well, when you asked me what the Global Indigenous Forum was, I didn't go off on talking about the faculty. But we have, um, when I first started this, um, it was basically me compiling an inventory of who in the university has expertise in this and teaches courses that are related to this. And so we already had a cadre of people. They just weren't organized into a, a yeah. An, a unit. Right. And, uh, and what sort of things were they doing? And so, uh, well, uh, we, had, uh, we had people like uh, Jim Reock in Earth and Environment, uh, and he was, uh, uh, for years, he was running a, a study abroad program through the Honors College, uh, taking students to Project Amazona in Ecuador. Uh, to uh, and they would go out on a boat to a research station and they had many years of building relationship with that community of indigenous peoples and they were they were bringing health and education resources there and so we have a Julieta Rosso uh, whose whole career has been studying the governance of uh, people in uh, Ecuador 
uh, and on the Amazon side. And right at this moment, she is, uh, this is our summer break is this next week. She's teaching a course this semester uh, where she has taken uh, the courses on this topic of indigenous uh, ecological environmental issues and uh, governance, how, how indigenous peoples are managing their resources. And right now, the, um, those students left. They're down there now uh, doing a, a summer break uh, engagement with that same community. Fantastic. And, and so, um, and then my work with the Native uh, North American peoples, and, and my, I, I've done work in Alaska and, and um, tribal communities there on health and diabetes, and then working with the Seminole and Miccosukee. I was brought up here. I brought up in Opalaka. Mm. And as a preteen, my family was engaged with the Seminole and Miccosukee, so I have long even before wanting to be an anthropologist. That's what got me interested in being an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. But th those relationships then mean that uh, by creating the Global Indigenous Forum and the group, having a, creating places for events and activities and making it public through the modern media, Facebook and uh, our webpage, it's very well developed. Uh, there's a column there, upcoming events, where if anybody wants to go to an event anywhere in South Florida, it's just not FIU. It's a place for anybody to wants to do anything indigenous. We, we put up University of Miami things, Miami-Dade, Seminole, Miccosukee, History Miami, wherever there's something indigenous. It, it, so what we want to do is build a cohort of interested people uh, to build a community. A network, a, a net, really. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, it seems to be working, and we get um, hundreds of people listening in on our Facebook and uh, web page and we had an event uh, when the Dakota pipeline uh, was a big issue uh, two, two years ago still mm -hmm. is uh, we had uh, filled the uh, one of our biggest rooms of 250 people at the same time uh, internet we had uh, 825 people listening in from 12 different nations wow. so um, we, uh, we bring in uh, so the faculty our teaching courses uh, every semester. We, we have Jenna Gibbs in history, who t uh, we established a brand new course just for this purpose called uh, uh, Imperial Indigenous Encounters. And so it's a deep history of five different places of the world and how the indigenous have uh, encountered this imperial colonial issue. And so today, decolonization is a major uh, emphasis. Coming and I from know that course. Peoples. I know that course very well yeah. because Jenna was the she, that is a global learning designated mm -hmm. course and she was the first person the first faculty member to take our online global learning course design and instruction workshop uh, because she mm -hmm. was uh i can't recall if she was on sabbatical or if she was she's on research leave now okay she was on research leave then mm -hmm. and i i created that that mechanism, especially for our distance learning faculty and also faculty like herself who are who are uh, off campus, she was the first person to go through that experience and develop that course. After that, it was mm -hmm. for me incredibly uh, gratifying that yeah. she th that she was able to use that information for that right. purpose. But right. and it was also really the first course in history. That history department in the history department that genuinely embraced 
global learning yes. in a fundamental way, yes. and it set off a wildfire amongst yes. her colleagues. Yes. So I'm very, I'm excited about yeah, that intersection. Because some of our disciplines are so specific, Atlantic history. Yeah. Yeah. And so where's the other people in the world? Yeah. Uh, is often uh, needs, to, and so this course did that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, many of our courses are uh, are culturally specific, like uh, Masako Kubota in uh, Asian Studies. She's also in Modern Languages. She teaches Japanese language and Japanese culture uh, courses. Uh, but she's uh, she helped us uh, uh, three years ago to bring the Ainu, the original peoples of Japan, from the island of Hokkaido, Hokkaido uh, here to FIU for a week. And so we had... Uh, uh, a young a person who was in high school, all the way up to elders, so it was like five, six people, and they were here performing and dancing. And uh, you know, I brought a flyer showing their musical instruments and their clothing and the spirit of the Ainu supernatural environment of Kamaway. I was there and that so, night. <laughs> you, were you yeah, there? I was there. We had a full house. Yes, didn't we? it was packed. It was. It was really the moving. energy yeah. was truly emotionally moving, and and it wasn't just because. Well, I have a connection to that to that course as well, and it was because of the energy throughout the space. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we incorporated students in that because uh, Masako was teaching Japanese, and so what she did was took each one of her students and teamed them up with each of our seven visitors to be translators. And so for the next week, uh, we then traveled as a group. We visited, uh, they then performed at the uh, the seminal uh, annual event in November with the Atatiki Museum, where they, it's their annual arts and native arts celebration, uh, and they moved that crowd also. And, and uh, you know, the Seminoles themselves thanked us so much to have brought the international global perspective to them. And since then, that event, they've been inviting other indigenous peoples from around the world, so we were able to influence that. Fantastic. But then, uh, that after that uh, weekend, uh, we then went up to the Brighton Reservation Seminole, which is on the northwest coast of uh, Lake Okeechobee, and uh, they wanted to visit uh, their schools and their senior centers, and so we, we even stayed, they stayed there overnight on the reservation, and uh, they learned uh, how the, the Seminoles are uh, making sure that their language is continued by they have a total immersion language program for preschool in the first few years there where all the curriculum is taught in the, and is no, not allowed to speak any other language and they have elders teaching the youngsters as well as uh, accredited teachers teaching the accredited curriculum but it's in Muskogee and Creek uh, and then we uh, then we visited with the Mikasuki leaders on both occasions and you know there were other events in there the question was that um, through globalization and corporations, they want to take resources from indigenous peoples, their lands, their language, their medicines. And tourism, tourism is globally impacting people throughout the world. And so the Ainu, uh, the uh, nation of Japan says, okay, we're going to build a whole resort there uh, in order to promote the uh, uh, tourism. Uh, isn't this great? And, the right. and they say, well, this is our land, and how, what are we going to say about this? So they came here, you know, and this was funded through various grants we wrote through the Japanese uh, uh, foundations. 
uh, but their their initiative was they wanted to come here not only to share their story with us, but they wanted to learn from the leaders of, of global tourism, the Seminole and the Miccosukee, because they've been at it so well. Absolutely. And so we set up interviews where they could talk directly, you know, with through interpreters, to find out how how could they still control their own destiny uh, with this uh, tourism that's being imposed upon them. And so we we brought people from the Colombian Amazon, and so wherever we we bring tribal peoples in, we try to. Uh, not only have a public kind of event for students and faculty learning, small learning groups, but also for them to engage with our local communities. We have Carib communities, we have Lakota, we have Seminole, Miccosukee, Quechua, and we try to bring them together for their voices to be heard among one another. So this is deep global awareness, <laughs> which is all about interconnectedness. and. What I hear you saying is that the forum and the, and the global indigenous group, it's not just about learning about the other, but it's about making connections mm -hmm. amongst different peoples and on so many different levels. And empowering them. <laughs> and empowerment through that connection yeah. making. And engagement of our students and our faculty at that same time as those things are unfolding right before us. So we create a place and a space for that to happen. That's creating a kind of social value. It's, it's creating value. I'm starting to think about you know social entrepreneurship and social innovation and the space that colleges and universities occupy in, in, in that realm, because mm -hmm. we are certainly about the production and exchange of knowledge. But could it be kind of like a triple bottom line in that through the production and exchange of knowledge, we're creating social value. We're creating, oh, yeah. like you said, empowerment <clears throat> and engagement and, and, and uh, economic value. Yeah, and so there's this uh, uh, thing of uh, indigeneity, uh, and so uh, before the uh, UN in 2007, many indigenous peoples were denying their identities and they were wanting to uh, affiliate with the dominant group. And thus we have people who would say, well, in Mexico, we don't have any indigenous people. They're mestizos. And, uh, and so, or, uh, so there's these intermediary terms that the dominating colonizer settlers negotiate, and it erases the histories and the cultures of the original peoples. And it's a way of dominating and dissolving them, and especially their land rights. So, uh, by having this happen now for six years and bringing these people in or you know, us going to conferences and being part of the academic conferences and all, what we learn is that there's commonalities uh, to wherever these people are all over the world and their relationships with these settler nations who come and try to dominate and, and to e erase their histories and their culture and, their, and gain their resources. And so part of this empowerment is to have that story be told in many different forums, but also among, create a place among the native pe indigenous peoples of the world for them to learn that th they're not doing, it's just not happening to them. Right, this you're is part a, of something this is much a, bigger. This is part of globalization, and yeah. it's a global phenomena, and it's recurrent. And so that's kind of like the academic enterprise that we're engaged with, especially with our advanced uh, graduate students, mm -hmm. different places of the world, how is this unfolding? 
in, in language retention, in uh, rights to uh, resources. Uh, and so it's um, happening. And that's the academic enterprise. And it's, it's doing well by our students because mm-hmm. we know that grit and perseverance, it's deeply embedded within one's identity. Right. And when one's identity is erased, that right. has such an impact. Yes. Mental health, suicide, alcoholism, a lot of things are health. You know, I'm the medical anthropologist and um, uh, cross-cultural mental health also. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot, of, a lot of health disorders are due to identity issues and not being clear about who oneself is. And so if you're of a group which is always being told that your religion, your language is not uh, good, it actually demonized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, devil, pagan, those kinds of words. The young people just, uh, you know, that's just not a good, healthy way to live. And that, they've been dealing with that for all these years of colonization. And now we're in this new era where, hey, the nation's uh, UN says it's okay to be indigenous. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, the hard part. A, a lot of the stories that are told are act- make you cry yeah. uh, and, you know, moved by, you know, these are, you know, extermination, genocide, ethnocide. These are very hard stories to listen to. But a part of it is, um, there, I think among our students in general, not just indigenous students, is a sense of, I want to do something. I want to make a difference. And so there's a sense of activism. And so uh, with our student group, Global Indigenous Group, we, we're at it six years, and so uh, students graduate and, and leadership changes rapidly. And what's the consistency is the faculty advisors and the people around, right? And so we see that uh, the, the interests of the club and what they're doing is greatly influenced by whoever the leader is and uh-huh. wherever the, from the world they're from. So we've had leaders from, you know, on our founding Danica Mays is from the Anishinaabe in northern uh, 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 Wisconsin, and and uh, we have had uh, people from Ecuador, uh, and then we, and and we also have um, you know non-natives. So we've been able to actually do this to where uh, non-natives and natives actually are together. Okay, you, now and, you're bringing up what my next and, and when question when is. I talk about this at other universities, they say that is unusual because often the, the student native clubs want to be native. And they kind of, there's, there's a friction and a tension there that I learned has happened at, you know, some schools like uh, Minnesota and all, they've been at this for 50-something years, you know, Native American studies programs. And so the survival of student clubs is, is always problematic. And some of it is due to these identity issues of who's powered, who's empowered, you know, what tribe you're from and all. But we've been able to not have that as an issue, but what, what is an issue is activism. How active do we want to be? Uh-huh. Do we want to be the ones who are out there protesting, or do we want to be the ones that bringing up all these harsh, negative histories, or to be we the ones that want to be celebrating all the good things? And so that's a careful balance. Okay, so you just brought up three things that were floating around in my head while you were talking. One of them had to do with... Um, are non-native students engaged mm-hmm. and non-native faculty engaged? 
Um, and if so, how how does how is that uh, balanced? And and I think and then the other piece was um, are we engaged with similar activities in other universities? And I think what I've heard you saying, and please correct me, is that yes, we are, and that there is something slightly different going on here around the around both the intersections amongst Native peoples around the world, that it's not just our North American or even South Florida Native peoples, but peoples around the world. You mentioned that we have a, a Fulbright scholar. You, yes. you told me before we started talking mm-hmm. that we have a Fulbright scholar from India here right now. So there's that connection making. And then the connection making to identity in that this is an issue that all human beings grapple with is what is our identity who am i who am i what are the aspects of my identity that are elevated in other Mm -hmm. people's eyes and those aspects of my identity that are not recognized or denigrated in other people's eyes and what control do i have over that and and for that reason you're 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 going as an anthropologist i think by virtue of you going very deep into what what is the purpose of the study of indigeneity, it's around identity and empowerment. And by going in that direction, it allows so many people to connect mm-hmm. with the work that you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm overworked. I have so many things. I'm a teacher, I'm a researcher, publishing, uh, a national leader in my profession and the director of this Global Indigenous Forum. And so sometimes I just say, you know, oh, this is just too much, or oh, this isn't working. But as soon as I come and I'm uh, to campus and I'm at one of these occasions where this is all happening, it's like uh, it's all self-sustaining now. You know, you're right? Yeah, how? How is it? And it just happens, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, I thought uh, things weren't going to happen, right? And boom, we have this great event happen (laughs) or, you know, um, and so uh, we built up enough enough critical mass now that I'm hoping it doesn't. Yeah. uh, You know, people have taken ownership. Yeah. And I'm at my five or six years at this. And so I'm ready to hand this off to somebody else. And the question is, can it keep happening, you know, without Dennis, you know, and so I'm. I, I, that's a big question, uh, but uh, I can see that, that we have so many different things happening at different levels, uh, and we have so many institutionalized events that, like, um, we usually have an indigenous celebration each year, but uh, l- uh, two years ago, the students were able to petition the student government to uh, have Indigenous Day be on Columbus Day, October 8th each year, the first Bravo. Monday. Mm-hmm. And we normally have our indigenous celebration at different times of the year. You, it's been in April. And so now we're in a transition to where, well, we're sh- shift the indigenous celebration, dance performance in the Graham Center Ballroom, 100 people or so. We're gonna, they're going to move it into indigenous week in the beginning. So right now we're in a transition. But uh, because that uh, we, we still have the ballroom and we're, we're putting another event in there called uh, uh, Indigenous State of Affairs, where we're going to have panel discussions and open discussion on critical global issues of peoples in different parts of the world. You know, uh, Japan just recognized their uh, nation state, uh, uh, Kaido, uh, uh, the Ainu. Uh, we have Bena Singar from India, who's um, has been here for... Uh, um, nine months 
and she 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 just learned about us through our presence um, emails and web page and uh, so we have a global recognition we have foreign scholars come from the other side of the world now to be here you know self-funded through the Fulbright and she's teach she's taught many different uh, presentations a uh, perspective from her side of the world and and how it's unfolded in India is very different than the, the political history of colonization here in the Americas uh, and so uh, and and this idea of identity, we have in uh, in a month we have a whole evening, uh, Friday evening, dedicated to a panel discussion on who is indigenous, and ah. we have a person, a panelist from uh, each country, uh, continent. We have Bina Sangar from India. Uh, we have Candy um, uh, Herdado coming from uh, Peru. Uh, we have. Um, uh, Donuts uh, coming from the Iroquois Nation in New York, and so we are bringing that uh, what is happening on the different continents, different global situations, and the, these changing identities, the reemergence and empowerment of identities. How does it affect individuals? How does it affect the political economy and their control of resources? All of that is up for discussion. Who is indigenous? And we have many students here, and some of our student leaders who. Um, they start out in somebody's class, and they are engaged in our club. And over time, you can see they say, yeah, my parents, my grandparents, uh, faint story that somebody there is indigenous. But what we do is we, through the steps, this has unfolded many times, uh, they then learn how to learn about that. How do you learn about your family history? What questions do you need to ask of your relatives? Because in many of those cases, the generations back didn't want to admit that they were indigenous. They wanted to associate with the dominant group, you know, the Spaniards or the British. Don't speak the language, don't do the religion. So there's students now querying their parents. And we have, we have a student who's past president of the club who was Costa Rica and Costa Rican, and he thought that... Uh, you know, there's some faint history there. He then started querying his family. Uh, he ended up going a uh, summer with an uncle back to Costa Rica, learning that there's uh, a dozen or more recognized tribes in Costa Rica, and he went right <laughs> back to his community. Yeah. Oh, oh, I told you know I told you at the, before we started speaking that I usually cry in these podcast interviews, and now you're the one doing it. Uh, so this is this. So it's individual identity building for yeah. our students who um, want to know that, and so um, that's part of this effort. So this is. This is deeply personal work. Yeah. And um, there may be some of us in, in our colleges and universities who feel uh, comfortable doing that work, and those of us who, who may not feel comfortable. And, and I, I don't know if you agree, there needs to be space for, yeah. for both. And, and mm -hmm. that implicates the... the uh, not really a dichotomy, but the discussion that you that you mentioned before. How active do we want to be? What what do we? How how is that dis, that dialogue played out yeah. here? I think that's important to it pull is. back the curtain on that on that dialogue. Yeah. How is that played out here? All right. Um, 
Uh, so, yeah. uh, for, uh, a question you asked me before, but I didn't answer, but it mm. leads into this one, is uh, what is the relationship between people who have indigenous identities and heritage and people who are non-indigenous? And so I mentioned in the club, uh, it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, the, the next, uh, the leadership right now is non-indigenous, but it looks like the, the next one's engaged with us this year who be the leaders next year will be indigenous so it goes to whoever is part of the group you know that's the leadership and who has that leadership skill mm-hmm. um, but when it comes to the faculty uh, one of the main uh, things that uh, stimulated me to do this is that uh, since I have this long history of uh, my family and my professional career being engaged with Native North Americans and involved with health and well-being is that here we have thousands of faculty there isn't a single regular tenured line faculty who identifies in public as indigenous Ooh. Mm-hmm. so the in working with our development office we've developed our money raising funding efforts and one one of the main things is to get an endowed uh, professorship of uh, internationally known scholar who's of indigenous topic. Mm-hmm. We we can't recruit saying you have to be indigenous, right. but that's what we're hoping is to mm-hmm. is to is to be able to uh, draw faculty here who uh, are of indigenous heritage, and for them to find to be comfortable here, because before I started this initiative, or after I started the initiative, I would have uh, department chairs come to me and say, Dennis, I wish you were around when we were recruiting for that line position because we had a leading scholar here in the topic we were focused on. And they were of indigenous heritage, but they, when they were here, they looked around and they didn't find a community to be part of. Ah. And so that's what we do. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have the dialogue. And we let what naturally emerges from that dialogue happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we invite that dialogue. Yeah. So we do have attention there in that most of our faculty who are teaching are um, non-Indigenous. Like uh, I talked about um, with the Ainu, Masako. She's Japanese, but she's not Ainu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is an important point to discuss because so many institutions across the U.S. and abroad are looking to internationalize at home. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the term, the, the technical term, internationalization at home, meaning we don't have to, and we can't in many cases, send our students or our faculty abroad, uh, bring people to our campus. We need to look for ways to enhance our students' global awareness, engagement, and perspective with the material, the perspectives, the peoples that are right here Mm -hmm. on our campus and in our communities. And what I hear is you providing a model and some fundamental dynamics for faculty, staff, for student leaders to create a space on their campuses and in their communities 
to engage different perspectives. Now, and this is applicable to, it doesn't necessarily have to do with indig- indigeneity, but it has to do with belonging and identity. Mm-hmm. And the way you've talked about the relationship between the faculty work and the student work and community work, the way you've talked about enhancing connections amongst those in the in-group and the out-group, <laughs> to use an anthropological, sociological term, um, and amongst uh, the diversity within diverse pers- within different perspectives, these are these are this is the kind of this is the what the work is about. Mm-hmm. This is how we can internationalize at home. This yeah. is how we can make our home more welcoming to everyone who finds themselves here and wants to be here. Mm-hmm. If you had a, a resource mm-hmm. that you could recommend uh, to to help others who want to create a space the way you have mm-hmm. on their campus, what might you recommend? Well, the resources since we started this, and part of the success of it is um, two things. One is we're an international city, yeah. and we're a hub for airports. People from all over the world come through here. So when we look at, at, at other schools, how, did, how do you do this? I've, I think the foundation is just our place here in the world, mm-hmm. in the hemisphere. And so that when, when dignitaries or, or, travel or uh, major indigenous leaders are traveling through the airport and they have a local friend who knows what we do, they call us up and say, hey, so-and-so is coming into town. They're going to have a layover here. Would you like to have them talk? And oh, so wow. Sometimes we have turned talks around in two weeks and we get a whole room full of people. You know, there are those spaces probably, mm-hmm. even in cities that we don't think of as necessarily gl- global crossroads. Right. In very small towns, they might have to be, they might be those those ports of entry. They might sure. be trading spaces. Sure. They might be the, the, the chamber of commerce. Who knows where they are? But what I hear you saying is find that place of intersection. Yeah. Nearby. Nearby, wherever it might be. Wherever it might so, be. So we were able to bring in uh, the representative to the United Nations that represented all of uh, Latin America uh, back in uh, August. Also, mm-hmm. just to get the news out, is how do we do this? This is So we have students who are motivated enough now to generate funding to get their own way to Washington to uh, for this um, Indigenous People March on January 18th. It made the front page of our newspaper. I'm holding it up now. It says, Prophecy of the of unity fulfilled, university indigenous groups march on Washington. So we, our, our student group is so active, they were able to gain enough access to resources to go up there with, with several of our local community indigenous leaders, by the way. Where, where the resources, you know, that you're asking me is, um, the main resource is, is to tap the energy of, of, of students, especially on this idea of activism. Not harsh activism, but I want to do something. Yeah, I want to lay my hands yeah. to this thing. And so many of our clubs, um, I, I hear from that they don't last long uh, because uh, there's nothing really to motivate them to get things done. Yeah. And so I've been quizzed on how come this club's working so well. And so that's one of the features that I say. There's so many different aspects of this that people can find issues or ways that they want to do things. Ah. It's so broad. So lots of doorways in, open doors. And and I've already shared with you all the multiple levels and 
not all of them, but many of them. Yeah. And so uh, people can find a place and they can find a, a welcoming, mm-hmm. a way to be engaged in a recognized kind of way. A way to find, yeah. find connection and relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is the resource that we can share? Is that right from the very beginning, we used the Internet. And uh, I, I was in the provost office for a long time. And uh, just to reveal the background a little bit, (laughs) when we first uh, were using micro desktop computers, I was the one that started accumulating university policies and procedures. And so I helped develop the first policy procedure manuals on electronically, taking Mm -hmm. the written versions from various deans and all. And at the same time, the Internet was starting. So I'm actually the first one to post up a, a university web page. And there we would put up the policies and procedures for everybody to, to build the university community. I have been in the computer, you know, before that I was trained to be doing research in, you know, uh, using computers. I started with big IBM mainframes <laughs> yeah. and IBM The cards cards. and the whole thing. Yeah, so yeah. I've been through this whole process. And so I teach online hybrid courses. But when this student came to my office and said, uh, Where's the Indian club, native club? And I said, oh, well, we had one 10 years ago. And she says, well, I said, if you, if you want one, I'll work with you on that. And so that struck up our relationship, and we got the club going. But the, the uh, School of International and Public Affairs welcomed that, and they provided their communications folks to start making the flyers and to put it on the SIPA webpage and through the university announcements and... And then through the student club, they had um, uh, OrgSync. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Which is the website the that website all and the, the communication for all the 400-something clubs in the right. university. And if you put things on there, you can make it go to just among the club, among FIU, or public. You know, there's little ways of doing that. And so we were able to use the, both the university media and the uh, club media to get through the students to the faculty in the world. So most of those things were posted on uh, indigenous.fiu.edu. So that's the resource I'm bringing to you. That's like a gateway. That's our web page. And people can find the Facebook. The addresses, the links. We have LinkedIn page. We have Instagram. And uh, if you go back uh, through the um, events click, you can go back all the way to the very beginning and see all the events we've done. And oh, as, of, as, of, um, as of the end of last year, I think we've, we did 50 major events in five years. Wow, what an incredible resource. So you, again, so that's... all of these flyers that I'm showing you, yeah. they can actually all be printed out now still from the, from the web page. So you've got this history all the way back to your origin <laughs> laid out right there. Yeah. And there's even a, a tab called About Us, and there's a photo of the actual first meeting that pulled all this together as both the Indigenous Forum and the Indigenous Group. That's where we decided to do this. So what I hear is you're reiterating the group's mission in even how you communicate and publicize, which is many ways to connect, mm-hmm. many doorways, sharing stories <laughs> which is the which is the way that we that we connect and you're making this this is a resource that's open to anyone in the world We're who a public wants university, to connect public information it's it's there 
open source. Yeah, and that's part of the success too, is we view ourselves as a public university. And the things that we do are open to the public and, and the events that people come and, and uh, so we have people that have been with us, you know, and we have an advisory council and, and uh, I try to keep it 50% indigenous and 50% you know, faculty and university folks, but we have representatives from the Seminole and the Miccosukee and the Quechua and the Iroquois and, uh, and, and some of those, uh, you know, the, I, uh, my work with the Miccosukee, I, I did some research on the global marketing of indigenous culture. Uh, the perspectives from Lee Tiger and the Sem Florida Miccosukee, and that was published in the leading journal, American Indian Culture and Research Journal. And in doing that, uh, this is after I left the provost office and I went back to the faculty. You know, so how can I build up my research again? Mm. So I started visiting with the Miccosukee, and I says, "Well, here I have all these skills. How can I be engaged with you to your benefit?" Uh, the, the tiger, who's the son of the buffalo tiger, the founding chief, uh, he's, he's the one that organized the uh, Miccosukee Festival between uh, Christmas and New Year's every year. He was the main organizer of that for a very long time. Uh, he's now a senior. Uh, but uh, he, he said, yeah, uh, come and visit. And so I and a, a graduate student, we'd go visit him at his house, and, and he started telling us his story. And so we got IRB approval and uh, informed consent. And so we started recording that. And it, so it turned into this story of how, from the Miccosukee perspective, of how they were able to uh, succeed at tourism and more recently in gaming. You know, the Seminole now own the Hard Rock International in 103 or more cities in every country of the world. They are a global indigenous group. Uh, but this story unfolds is that I'm an intermediary. I'm just using my skills as the anthropologist for this community to tell their story of how they were able to bring, if you go out there every day of the year, you can drive down out, uh, Southwest 8th, go to the Cultural Center. On right the south past side, our university. Mm -hmm. 35 miles out there. It's open every day of the year. Maybe the holidays or not. But you just take that tour, and there will be groups of people around you, and you'll be amazed at the variety of languages that are being spoken. They've learned to bring populations from around the world to Miami to visit just them. And they primarily figured out a way to bring in the people of Eastern Europe and G Germany. And so that's what that research is about, is how this indigenous group was able to globally market indigenous culture. And Lee Tiger and that, that group actually went to international tourism ev events and put on exhibits and tables for decades. And they then became spokespersons for indigenous Native America. They didn't only want to see the Miccosukee, they wanted to go see the Apache and the Navajo. So that little tribe of only 600 people actually started uh, global tourism for many tribes as a model. And you know he became a consultant then to many tribes of how to do this. So I was very close to that. And so I learned from him too. He, he, when, when this student, uh, Anishinaabe said, where's the Indian club? Uh, I, I, well, we can do this. And then I talked to the people around me, Lee Tiger, and he says, you do that. You go ahead and do that. <laughs> so not only did I have uh, students wanting to do it, I had our local uh, Native people wanting us to do this. Dennis, I, I think 
those words, you do that, <laughs> are, um, are beautiful because I think what you just did is kind of open up a way to do that for so many people around the world who do want to do what just what you're talking about, make these kinds of connections, bring new voices to the table, empower our students and faculty to exchange and produce new knowledge and create value in our communities. Thank you so much for being here, mm-hmm. for sharing, for being so open, for talking with me today. All right. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.